Hello and welcome to The Song Inside, where we go inside people's stories to discover their songs. I'm your host, Dietrich Rodman Struck, piano goddess and song goddess, and I'll be walking people through this journey to find the songs hidden within themselves. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new year. A new year and the song inside. Hopefully we'll be making lots of songs in 2022. I can think of no better way to kick off 2022 than talking to my friend, jazz composer, arranger, big band leader, friend, etc. and director of the UNT One O'Clock Lab Band, Alan Baylock. Hello, Alan. Hey, Deidre. How you doing? Good. I was try, trying my sports announcer voice. <laughs> it worked really, really well. Thank actually. you. Been practicing that one. <laughs> we were just looking at some virtual backgrounds a minute ago, and one of them was a a stadium. So, UNT. Coming That's into right. the field, Alan Baylock. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I would argue that well, people probably wouldn't agree with me on this, certain people, but that UNT is as well known for its jazz program as it is for its sports. Discuss. Oh, yeah. We do have sports teams. Um, <laughs> the, I think the football team this year, the Mean Green, um, finished with a 500 record, but they beat a ranked opponent, so they were able to go to a bowl game, which is coming up oh. um, shortly, so... Wouldn't it be funny if we talked about, well, we kind of do it in North Texas, I mean, inside baseball there, but talk about ranked opponents. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. But, you know, I think, um, I don't think it's too many people would argue that the College of Music put the school on the map. Um, And in particular, of course, the One O'Clock Lab Band put the College of Music on the map. But yeah, we do many, many wonderful things here. Yes, I'm uh, a little intimidated to talk to you only because like, so we, we've been friends for a long time and we were sort of coming up in the world of UNT together in a way. Um, I believe you were my, were you my, my arranging TA maybe or my teacher? Yes, and I was remembering that I had two standout students and I could rank those also, um, <laughs> but you were by far the best student I ever had. Stop. Alan. In the arranging labs? Oh, absolutely. Because you took notes. You were curious. You did the assignments. It it was great. Thank you. I I thought you were going to say, I could rank those and you were number 95. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Now you're number one. I won't tell you who number two is, but his name rhymes with Raleigh Daly. Oh, hi, Raleigh. I beat you, yo. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) He finished a distant second. (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting because back when you know i'm I'm dating myself now but back when that must be fun well yeah it is really fun i'm so fun to be around (laughs) (laughs) it's a love-hate relationship (laughs) but back when i was when we were doing arranging in the late 90s it was just when the internet was starting to really boom so i have everything from those days written out by hand and I'm embarrassed to say it's still my preferred way of doing things, but no, whatever it takes. I mean, that can be a real organic way to do it. You know, not, um, you know, disenfranchised or not distracted by all the computer stuff. Well, I think it's also because I don't do that much big, big ensemble arranging anymore. And if I did, I would immediately switch because, you know, mm. one transposition and that'll just cause you immediately to ditch all the paper. Right. Exactly. So what do you use because you probably are having to do a lot of what do we used to call it copy work back in the day you know you'd like hire someone to do yeah copy work yeah well I started doing copy work a long time ago in fact I still I'm still kind of proud I I do have the little callus on my ring finger of my right hand uh, but yeah I'm a finale guy Um, okay and I started that actually at UNT you were an early adopter I feel like yeah it was um 2.87 maybe it was pretty early on, and I signed up for David Joyner, uh, mm-hmm. a class called MIDI Music or something, MIDI for Musicians, and Finale was part of the curriculum. So I got, you know, trained while mm-hmm. sitting next next to 
um, other people in the class. So it was really, really helpful. That is really helpful. I don't remember having to take a finale class there or any, any kind of class like that, but maybe it just wasn't as much of a thing. I yeah, don't I think know. it was an, an elective. For me, it was yeah, exactly. It was an elective. Um, yeah. And I think it was maybe, I don't know if it was just a grad school thing or not. It was mm-hmm. probably for everybody. But I remember Dave Burke, a wonderful trombonist who actually did a career in the army. He sat next to me um, in the <laughs> computer lab and he was my lifesaver because, you know, the learning curve is incredibly right. steep. Uh, so I don't know if he remembers that, but I remember, you know, bugging him all the time. And he was very gracious <laughs> to give me information. It's funny so. because I, you know, I married a person who's not a musician, but he's really interested in all finale, Sibelius, gear, like any kind of that, of that stuff. And so when we first started dating, he bought me as a gift Sibelius and then he bought me the expansion pack and then he mm-hmm. bought me and like for he's still trying to and i've done a few things on it you know under duress i, I did a a choral arrangement of something and it's sort of like i never wanted to be patient enough to take take, take the uh, tutorials so i would mm-hmm. just kind of white knuckle it <laughs> he's like <laughs> what you're making this so hard for yourself I'm like just let me figure out how to change this key signature you know <laughs> and just again the other day he's like showed me an ad for Sibelius and said what do you think <laughs> maybe it's time maybe 20 yeah, right. what, whatever years later it's going to be my turn how do yeah, you think um, UNT has changed since we were there the jazz department in yeah. particular sure yeah that's a great question um, first of all the personnel um not only the faculty, but the staff has changed tremendously. Um, Craig Marshall is still there as lab band manager. So that's nice that there is some con- continuation from the past. And he was here in the late 80s as a trombone major and played in the one o'clock lab band himself. I think he was only gone for one year. He taught college uh, and then he came back um, at the request of Neil Slater. But um, everybody else has retired, all the faculty members that we had including Mike Stunow, who just retired a couple years ago. Okay. Um, Fred Hamilton, but, too? Yeah, Fred okay. Hamilton, Ed Sof, um, Dan Paris Hurley, Rutherford. Yep. Yeah, Neil and Riggs. The amazing thing is um, Dan Hurley, they all still live in Denton, which is fantastic, especially pre-COVID when everybody yeah. would be out and about. Um, so there's a lot of history still in Denton, even though those guys are now faculty emeritus. Right. Um, but because of that, we have expanded also. We now have 15 full-time faculty instead of five or six. Wow. Yeah, which is That's really great. great. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of, uh, well, you know, new generation of educators who have different experiences learning and now who have different experiences teaching. And um, a lot of great players, but all, also a lot of great scholars mm. who are very, very intelligent, um, who see a new path forward on teaching you know big band teaching improv teaching jazz history teaching all the core classes um you know with we said homage but i know people say homage so i'll be fancy (laughs) homage to the past (laughs) but also looking toward the future right um, at the same time so in in particular the jazz improv curriculum Mm -hmm. has been completely revamped by dave meter our jazz piano professor who uh, spent some time in New York. He's from Florida, but he's uh, spent a lot of his Mm -hmm. training in New York. Really an incredibly gifted pianist, but a super smart, um, you know, like genius level brain who can comprehend all the curriculum and all that in one fell swoop. So for example, when I was there, I remember we, you know, we took improv one and two, we took arranging, we had small group combos and then big band and I don't remember a lot else from the improv curriculum. Do you, So are yeah. there any extra classes going on now? Um, well, there are, of course, the Jazz History series as well. Oh, right. And then forgot about that. Call- <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, right. Sorry, Dr. <laughs> Joyner. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Joyner, hopefully he's listening. Sorry. <laughs> um, the, you know, also, we call it Jazz Fundamentals, mm-hmm. uh, which is oral skills, yeah. uh, ear training, all that stuff. Um, so that's that falls under one category now. But in addition to that, of course, we have more courses in electronics. We have um, 
a Ableton class mm. and uh, other things that involve technology, which are right. also super helpful for the people of, of the, you know, the students, yeah. of their generation, which is even one removed from me, although we have a wide range of yeah. you know, aged students. So Do I you... think that that core curriculum that you're talking about mm-hmm. is this basically the same, mm-hmm. um, within each of those categories, of course, the direction has evolved. Right. And because you have more instructors, that means more viewpoints, more styles of teaching. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And you and, do the uh, one o'clock band. What do you do? That I'm sure takes up a lot of time, but do you volunteer to take on other classes? <laughs> yeah. In the fall, I teach a graduate level jazz conducting class. Oh, nice. Which is capped out at 12 students, which is super fun. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, it's really fun. So we get to learn the essentials of not only the physical gestures, but the psychology of mm. directing a big band, programming, you know, stage setup, all that stuff. Yeah. So that happens in the fall. And then in the summer also, I teach that same class. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the spring, I coordinate the jazz lecture series, yes. uh, which is still a super valuable thing. I'm trying not to say super too much also. No, no, but but I, I it's okay, really. I mean, it's... I tell people it was a it was a super school for me. It really yeah. I was so nervous when I went there because I was coming from being a a big fish in a very small pond and I wanted to sort of throw myself into bigger waters. And it was intimidating, I think, because my first party, I think somebody said, Hey, what number are you? It's like, what are you talking about? They're like, what number band are you? And I'm like, I don't know. And so <laughs> But once I got past that, I realized that everybody there, there was just such a a culture of collaboration and playing together that I don't think I've found replicated, except in New York City, maybe having sessions at other people's houses. But that's just what we were doing there. And people were so supportive. Everybody was playing for each other. It really felt much more welcoming than I had imagined it to be. Yeah, I'm glad you had that experience. It was f- the same for me. Um, I came also from a small pond mm-hmm. and wanted to immerse myself and, and challenge myself. And I remember driving into Denton because I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. also. And I did my undergrad in a relatively small town. So driving out 380 and I'm coming toward TWU, which has those still has those two large dormitories. I'm like, man, this is the big city here. You know? <laughs> Oh, oh my god! Then I pull on campus, and I just assume everybody's a musician. You know, all that. Right? Yeah. Oh wow! <laughs> That's um, so funny. And then that first Wednesday, of course, at the RBL, the Rock Bottom Lounge was the the place. I believe at the time, I heard Greg Waits's quartet, which included Brad Turner, oh my who gosh. was playing trumpet at an unbelievable level. And then he put his trumpet down and sat down at the piano. Yeah, he's and one I'm of those like, people. Oh, where you're like, come on, the rest of us are just trying to play one, man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you got to play four? Stop. <laughs> right. So that was a combination of me feeling like uh, intimidated, but also I'm in the right place. This is where I need yeah. to be. Yeah. I think it's good to be challenged. I remember when I was first touring the school, I got really lucky. I... I Toward the school, there was a tornado warning or something. And I was like, they don't have these in Idaho, you know. (laughs) And I – so I was already feeling a little weird. And I was going to be starting school in January, which was the middle of the year. But I – Dan Hurley offered to take me around and give me a little tour. And I went in the practice areas. And I was just listening to everybody practicing. And I was like, wow. I feel – so intimidated and also so excited. Right. Made me want to practice, you know? Mm-hmm. And then just the the universe was smiling upon me that day because somebody had given up a scholarship, I think, that day. And Dan said, hey, you want this spot? <laughs> said, <laughs> uh, yes, please. <laughs> just, I'm not even sure if he had heard, heard me at that point. He probably had. but yeah. But still, it just felt like it was meant to be. That I yeah, went to UNT. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that that vibe of the students is still there. It is competitive, but it's also nurturing. And as you know, the other and other advantage is just the number of students in the jazz division itself, which is always between you know two fifty or three hundred, yeah, depending on what semester it is. And all those become our connections, not only as a, at a friendship level, but also as a collegial level, also. And those right. are the people 
like the two of us, or we may have met other places, right? but we met there and we continued to, you know, speak and talk business, but also be friends. And right. it's like that for, you know, hundreds of other people. So I think exactly. that's another great I thing about I interviewed Ari Honig on this podcast a few months ago, and it, I'm not yes. even sure this story made it to the actual edit, but it was my first day back in New York. I went, I did the cruise ship route and Ari picked me up from the airport and I was kind of in this mood. I just wanted to start fresh. I wanted a clean slate. He picks me up at the airport. He'd hurt his knee. So it's like, you're driving. And then we went immediately to like two or three clubs at which I saw so many North Texas people. And I was thinking, I thought I was getting away from all of this, but (laughs) what it meant was that I moved to New York and had a network of friends already, Mm -hmm. which was great. And those people are still friends of mine. (laughs) So I think like you're saying it, you can make friendships. I guess that's true of most colleges, but especially when you have musical sort of soulmates that you have a deep connection with. And then For you sure. move to a larger place, you don't feel so alone. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think the – I'm sure it, that experience is found in other universities. But just the yeah. numbers um, and the quality at UNT continue to be just really high. Yeah. So I want to listen to a little bit of your music. Um, this was really fun for me. Oh, I've cool. actually I've, – I've been getting back into listening to large ensemble music. I just went – a couple of weeks ago and saw Rang Heberly's jazz orchestra playing in Manhattan. And then I interviewed Alan Ferber and that'll be coming up. And just anybody who can and continues to write for a large ensemble has my eternal respect. And then further, if you can get that many people together to perform, it's like, wow, that's insane. Um, So I asked you to pick a song that took you from darkness to light. And I want you to speak a little bit about El Abrazo. Yeah, that was one of those really unique experiences for me um, in composing that. It was written for, um, in honor of a student from Ohio, and um, I knew his band director, and the band director told me the story and shared pictures and videos of this person. His name was Shane Albaugh, and um, he, I guess maybe a lot of people didn't know that he had a, a heart defect. So just before his senior year, he passed, but he was known as somebody um, who had a a love and a passion for trumpet music, but also was a really nice guy. And uh, she said he was known for his big smiles and his warm hugs because he was a tall person with long arms. And so in naming the tune, it's called El Abrazo, which means the embrace or the hug. Um, And the the intro, which has that repeated note. Yeah, it's beautiful. uh, yeah, that's to symbolize his heartbeat. Oh. And for this one, I just sat down at the piano and I said, what's the most simple thing I can do? And I pushed the middle C, you know, and I just kept striking the mm-hmm. middle C. Eventually, I did take it down a full step. But that was the most simple way yeah. I could think to start a piece. And then it kind of went on from there. And it was one of maybe two or three times in my career that the piece just flowed out all at mm. once and there was I felt like more like a conduit and yeah. less like a uh some somebody interfering. Yeah, it's so special when that happens and mm. that you could start with simplicity and then be able to get out of your own way mm-hmm. and just have that come through you. That's really really a special experience. So we're going to listen to El Abrazo. <laughs> Thank you. 
I have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> I also, I love, first of all, that you opted to just end it on this pure, open, major sound that you didn't go for something super hipster and unexpected and like crazy there, which I know you can do. You have all those tools, but that you allowed the piece to begin simply and end simply it feels like that's what the piece was sort of dictating to you. You didn't get in the way of that. Yeah, I think so too. And at the end of the intro, um, it's, you know, the major ninth mm-hmm. and it doesn't really resolve until the end of the outro, right. um, where it's just those octaves, but yeah, or the open fifth. And um, yeah, I, I, it definitely didn't seem like a time to be hip or quirky yeah. or shocking. 
But I know. also like that the framing device works really well. And I feel like yeah. it, it doesn't always work well in pieces if it feels like it's, oh, those are two different songs. Somebody pieced together. But it, you had your theme and the theme began. You had the ostinato, then you had the theme and the theme carried throughout. And it seemed really right to me. Do you have you written a lot of pieces that have framing devices like that? Um, probably. Like I guess, oftentimes the intro can be the outro. Um, with the endings of both of those slightly different because one is setting something up new yeah. and one closing out the piece, um, but never this significant. Like, yeah, because it's a pretty big swath of time. And what it made me think of is I like that you told us about the heartbeat because. It just makes me think of someone coming into the world and it just starts with a heartbeat and then going out of the world mm -hmm. that comes back and uh, it's making me kind of emotional just thinking about yeah. all the people right now in the world who are coming into the world and going out of the world and right. you yeah. really narrowed it down to its most important element, which is just that that heartbeat being played on the piano, which of course is my favorite instrument because, you know. I'm biased. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, originally it was going to be the lead trumpet double C. You know, doing that. Who is the tenor player? That's our friend Luis Hernandez. Oh my gosh! Case in point, you know, person who we met. Oh gosh, I miss and, him. He's yeah, so he, freaking good. He played on really my good. played. I believe he played on my recital. Okay, I mean, just saying. <laughs> yeah, where is he now? He was in D.C. Um, with the Navy Commodores. Mm -hmm. I think he may have just retired, but he's been in. I mean, we got in about the same time. So maybe 95, 1995, he got in. Yeah. Um, so spent over 20 years in the Navy Commodores up in Washington. Did he mostly play alto or was he playing tenor? I can't no, remember. He's been playing tenor in that band. Okay. But he did play alto in the one o'clock. Yeah. Uh, when he was here. But uh, yeah, he's been playing tenor in that band and he played tenor with my band as well. So good. And for people who don't know, um, that is a career option that is available to a lot of jazz and big band musicians, other kinds of musicians. A lot of people from North Texas did the cruise ship route. A lot of people went to get degrees other places and teach. A lot of people moved to New York and then a lot of people went the military route. Yeah. As did you. Amazing. Right. And it was something that I never grew up thinking I would do, mm -hmm. uh, but the time was right. And I knew about my, the predecessor in that position. And I knew writing for the Airmen of Note, there were 11 North Texas grads in there. Um, and even w I was in Chicago just a couple of days ago at the Midwest Clinic and the U.S. Army Blues played. And there were six UNT alum in that group, oh, wow. including the, the lead trumpet player and the drummer from my very first one o'clock live band Aww. when I started working here. So those guys, they were seniors at the time, and now they're in the Army Blues. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great um, career. It's not for everybody, mm -hmm. but it can be financially uh, lucrative and stable. Uh, right. And you get to play music with, with wonderful people. So you were right. How many pieces were you writing regularly for that group? Um, I think it would probably average uh, maybe – I don't know, roughly one a week. Oh my gosh. The thought of that just makes levels. me want to fall over and die because that's, <laughs> that is not the career that I, that I have chosen, but just yeah, the yeah. deadlines. I do work best with deadlines. Oh, me too. For sure. Well, I would imagine you would, would have to, especially if you have commissions and things like that, where it's coming up to the wire. Right. How does it work now? Do you, how many pieces do you write for the big bands? Do you mostly mm -hmm. just sort of search around? How do you find your material these days? Yeah, I do some writing for the one o'clock every year, maybe three or four charts, mm -hmm. and we always record one. Um, I'm also writing for Alfred Publications. They're, yes. I think it's no one jazz. Yeah, so I do that uh, two or three charts. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, various commissions. I have a couple coming up that are due early next year. Mm -hmm. But in terms of what we program for the one o'clock, um, the tradition continues that the bulk of the music, the majority of the music is composed and arranged by students, yeah. either current or past. Um, so I like featuring the classics, mm -hmm. but um, I mean, I, I just compiled the list and put it up on Instagram and Facebook yesterday. We did, we performed 38 different charts this semester, anywhere from, you know, of course we did some Thad, we did right. some Duke Ellington, um, we did some stuff from our new album, Lab 2021, mm -hmm. but obviously... Um, now's the time to feature um, many composers of different genders as well. So mm -hmm. we 
did some Mary Lou Williams. We did a, a Migiwak chart. We did something from Miho Hazama, which are all incredible. Christine Jensen, incredible mm. pieces of music. The, the Miho thing that we did was, um, what will you see when you turn the next corner? Mm. And it's an epic composition. I really and want to check that out. I'm writing that down. Yeah. The band embraced it. And it's one of those things that's difficult, but once you work it up, it's compl- mm-hmm. the payoff is really large. We've all played pieces that are difficult, and then you get to the performance level, and you're like, eh, okay, why did I do that? Right. But Miho's chart is intense, and it's very logical also. Um, so it, it, there's reasons for everything that she wrote. But right. the beauty of it is once you work it up, it's so fulfilling. I'm so excited to hear that. I can't wait to listen to that. Um, yeah, yeah. piece. And I also noticed I was just looking before I got on with you because the jazz education, the conference is coming up in January, hopefully. And yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, I know Deanna Witkowski is doing a presentation on Mary Lou Williams and there are a lot of panels on jazz and gender and women in jazz, which I think is really fantastic because it just wasn't something we talked about when you and I were back in school. Right. I think I thought about it a lot because I was always kind of hyper-conscious that I was sort of playing in a man's world in a way. That's how I felt, for better or worse. I quit singing while I was there because I was like, well, I people aren't going to respect me if I sing. I downplayed my femininity. I wore a lot of men's clothes. I just was like, I want to be one of the guys. Um, and nobody told me I had to do that, but that was just my way of trying to fit into this world. Sure. But I think it's expanded a lot since then. I'm really encouraged by what I'm seeing. And I just interviewed my friend Brittany Andrew, who did a whole doctorate dissertation on the mental health of jazz musicians, mm-hmm. stuff on equality. So it's exciting to see all these panels, all this stuff happening, all these new courses going on. It's like, I feel like jazz education has just completely burst forth in this ocean of possibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, it's about 10 decades too late, but it's... Well, <laughs> well we're, we're all struggling with issues like that. We're all realizing right. that, you know, we need to learn about things that we should have learned about decades mm-hmm. and maybe centuries ago, but... Right. But yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a wonderful time um, and to discuss these types of issues. And a couple of years ago with the Black Lives Matter opened up many, many discussions mm-hmm. on campus. And so there's focus on diversity of all kinds. Um, in the band, in the one o'clock now, we have two women musicians, well, three, because we have a full-time vocalist as well. Um, and I just think that the the time is right for those musicians, well, all the musicians, but in yeah. particular, the, the I'll just say the non-men. Yeah. <laughs> um, because it's, there is more focus and there's more opportunities now and there's more understanding and more emphasis right. and more, uh, all of that. There's more yeah. of that. And so it's a really wonderful time. Yes. If you're listening out there, ladies, it's it's our turn. Let's it's always Please. been our turn. Yes. But you know, yes, the yes. doors are open. Get on in there. Correct. <laughs> and I think there's more understanding um even at the elementary school level. Yeah. That yes, women can play the trombone. You don't have to put them on flute, you know. Exactly. So. It's so interesting because I was just speaking about that with my nine year old because she doesn't want to be in band it's not really where she's going but uh, her friend picked trombone and so we were talking about the choices of instruments and she's you know my daughter said well there's a lot of girls in our class that want to play flute but I think that you know Billy is amazing because she picked trombone and drums and a couple of other people a couple of other girls then said they wanted to play trombone and I was like that is that is great what a big sound what an awesome instrument and so then she and my older daughter were talking about why do people choose certain instruments and just even that they're thinking and talking about these things in a, in a way. They're not just accepting that girls play piano or play flute or they sing but don't play or they do this but not that. Mm-hmm. And that what I love about jazz is that there should be room for there's a soloist, there's an accompaniment. Sometimes two soloists play at once but they're communicating. There's space mm-hmm. for all of the voices. Right. So yeah, it makes sense, sure. well, you know. Absolutely. And I think in music, but all art, there's always room for artists, for sure. Yeah. Um, so at, at UNT, we have the tradition of um, breeding and um, developing and nurturing 
musicians who are in a supportive role mm-hmm. in all the major cities. You, yeah. know, you just mentioned New York, LA, Nashville, Dallas, all around the world, yeah. literally. Um, but of course there have been stars that come through as well, but the majority of graduates and alum are in the trenches working yeah. and, uh, you know, in, in all facets of the industry and some go on outside of the music industry and have wonderful careers. So it's absolutely. You know. I wanted to come back to something you said in the beginning, which is about the jazz lecture series, because when I was at North Texas, I remember that being very integral to my education there. Not more than playing with people, but certainly it was up there because these are real people that would come through. You know, it's this tiny town in Texas. It's just such a random place for this wealth of music to be happening. No offense, Texas, but, you know, um, but there were people that would come back and talk to us, professionals. I remember we gave Horace Silver a ride from the airport and just to be around these greats. And then there were also alumni that would come back. One person, I don't remember who, came back and said something like, you're never going to get this chance to practice as much ever again in your life, so quit complaining about it. Just (laughs) real-world perspectives. And I think it's really so important to have people coming through who are doing the work, who've lived the work, who are playing professionally, who may be teaching professionally, to get other viewpoints to come and talk to people. So you have like a huge – it's like – I don't know. You get to play around in this world and book people to come and speak. That's got to be so fun. It is really fun. Um, and it's here. I'll, I'll at this point talk about our Dean, John Richmond, who got here the same time I did. So we both arrived full time uh, the fall of 2016. So Neil Slater was here in 81. He started fall of 80, 1981. And he started the jazz lecture series because there was a faculty line that went away. So he stuffed that music. Yeah. He stuffed that money mm-hmm. into an account. And since from, from 1981, of course, into the year 2020, we had that music. I keep saying music. Sorry. We had you know what money. I like though, is that people don't usually associate music with money. And yeah, right. I like the Freudian slip yeah. of that because I yeah. think, we should not always assume that music does not equal money. Music can equal yeah, money sure. and certainly equals abundance. So I'm glad yeah. you did it. Anyway. <laughs> I'll do it one more time. Then. Okay, good. <laughs> so, yeah, do it three so times. That, then the audience will know that you meant it. Yeah, exactly. And so all that money has been there. Of course, the pandemic hits. And the person who was in charge of the budget didn't understand that this money was separate from everything else mm-hmm. for several decades, mm-hmm. three decades. It was designated for jazz lecture series only. It went away. Oh no. So we had, we did a virtual, of course, a virtual jazz lecture mm-hmm. series, the fall of 2020. And we were able to get some funds for that. Um, but this year, of course, we're back in person and there's no money. No. So Richmond, our Dean said, well, I understand the importance of this. So he gave us, I should probably shouldn't quote the figure, but he gave us enough money to have a lecture series where we have several artists on campus and then several artists virtual. So yes. he understands the importance. And, um, and this is our, of course, the 75th anniversary of the jazz division itself. So, Right. Uh, and for people that don't, year, that don't know, I, I went into this really assuming that people know a lot about North Texas, and they might not. It's so instrumental pun intended, right. um, in so many people's music careers, has an amazing classical program, has an amazing jazz program. It has, how many big bands are there now? 12? Uh, well, we, we, we have nine. Nine, but then you have jazz repertory ensemble still? That's on a hiatus, Okay, but it's going to be rebooted hopefully shortly. Right. So, you know, any school that has that, <laughs> ten, mm-hmm. nine or 10 big bands, it's, and, and you really, people learn how to sight read there. They, it's, it's. I feel like that's the thing I almost learned the most. Sorry, I want to go back to the lecture series. But just you're forced into these situations. Well, you're not forced because you choose to be there. But to learn how to play in an ensemble, you know. Um, Oh, yeah. So I I just think it's amazing. I I don't think people that aren't musicians might not know how incredibly rich the school is. So I'm glad that your dean understood the importance of the lecture series and got you – 2021. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and he's he definitely understands, and he's of course has risen up through the ranks of different colleges and mm-hmm. universities he's worked for, and this is the pinnacle of his career, as he would say. So of course he did his research, right, and appreciates us. Um, when we went to New York in 2020, uh, we played at Birdland and, and Jazz at Lincoln Center. He was right there with us. Oh, man, I'm sorry Our I Provo wasn't there. Was there. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Hopefully we'll be back. Yeah, Our provost was there. The president of the university was there. So we definitely feel the love from from the really the upper administration, the yeah. upper reaches of the upper administration. Um, so there, it, it is important. The ensemble playing is important. Also, we do, I keep saying breed. That's also a weird word. We nurture and um, help big band musicians who mm-hmm. in turn go up to DC mm-hmm. or go to LA, um, but also are what we call the jazz chamber music. JCM mm. is our combo program now. And that's gotten a big boost recently nice. and more of a focus on that as well, because obviously we understand that that's where most people will go. However, those experiences in big band are invaluable learning to play with a section, learning to play in tune about phrasing, getting along with other yeah, people. I think anytime when you can have a large group dynamic, anywhere it's really valuable especially i find it we're not going to talk about this too much but the fact that you started in the fall of 2016 must have been really interesting just because a lot of people in the country at that time and including up until today and probably beyond are not really communicating well with each other and when you're in a large ensemble you need to learn when it's okay to speak up, when it's okay, when you need to be laying back and not to get too meta, but I especially, I especially feel like in the rhythm section as a, as a pianist, that was so important for me to learn because you learn the skill of when it's time to like help the soloist really shine, then it's your turn as a soloist. Then maybe the guitar is comping. So you're not going to be playing. And when you are coming in kind of new, to this music, you don't always realize that sometimes the right thing to do is not to play right? or to play yeah. less. I remember when Jerry Mulligan came and did a jazz lecture series and he, he got on me because I was playing in the, the master class thing. I forget what it's called. Jazz forum. I think it was called. Mm-hmm. And I was accompanying a soloist and you know, the soloist, did a note from the melody and I played like an altered note under it. And it was this simple song and he, yeah. he picked out this one note and he just said, you know, your job right now is to support the melody. Mm. Anyway, I just think there's a lot of parallels to be drawn with our roles in society. There's times to support, there's times to be leaders, yeah. you know? Yeah, absolutely. For Whether sure. or not people playing in big bands, get that. I don't know, but I did. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's great. I think it is something that people can garner if they, if they are open to it. And also the peak of that is when we go on the road. Mm. So you're not only performing with these people, but you're living with these people. Um, mm-hmm. And your friends and your roommates become better friends, better roommates at the risk of becoming non-friends and non-roommates. Right. And then you still um, have to play with them on the bandstand that night. So, right. you know, right. And that's real life. Um, that is absolutely you know, uh, real life. The Basie Band was playing in Chicago. Um, let's see. I saw them in Chicago just two, four days ago. And now oh, they're in wow. Dallas. And they've had three dates in between. So mm-hmm. it's it's real life even now, big bands tour. And um, I think it's a great experience for the members of the 1 o'clock and 2 o'clock and other bands that tour to get all the musical benefits, but also those social benefits, which are invaluable. Also, I agree. I was in the three o'clock. I didn't tour, but still I learned how to, this sounds so basic, but (laughs) I've gotten so much work in New York by being competent, like not even like the best, just a competent player who shows up on time, which is to say early and is prepared. It counts for so much in the real world. Yeah. And I'm some, you know, that's what you're supposed to learn at college. But I mean, I don't know about other majors, but I definitely learned that at North Texas that you can be bookable by just doing what you do, being a pleasant person to be with, being able to work with other people. You know, it's not yeah. rocket science, but it, it does take practice. Absolutely. It's it's true. And and for the students, especially, you know, in, in their early 20s, if they're the majority of 
of them are yeah. late teens, early twenties. To to learn it at that age is really invaluable, and, right? And critical and, and crucial. What's it it's like being their role model? Oh, were well, you were you intimidated when you went back, and now you're overtaking this? Probably. I mean, I always thought, to be honest, um, I always thought I would come back as the arranging teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had a sense that I would be back. Yeah. Um, but. And I, I did come back throughout when I was in DC for 20 years. I mm-hmm. came back multiple times, probably even every couple of years. Um, Neil would ask me to write something or, you know, right. when the Gomez artists were there, I'd write for them. I remember coming down multiple times. I did stuff for Craig Marshall's um, vocal group that was mm-hmm. playing with the Dallas Symphony. And, and each time I came down, I would talk to Paris Rutherford, who was teaching jazz right. arranging and composing at that time. And, you know, it just seemed like a logical move. But then he retired at, in 2010 mm-hmm. and I was only... 14 years into my right. enlistment. Um, and I really wanted to do 20 years because uh, that's when you get your pension. Yeah. And you'd get nothing before that other than the experience. So coming back as the one o'clock director, it never really dawned on me mm-hmm. that that would be an option until, you know, about 2014 or so, 2013, I was thinking about it. And then the position came open. And it was it was amazing how it worked out because I did have one more year left on my enlistment mm-hmm. when the job opened up. But Jay Saunders stayed one more year as interim, wow. and I was able to get hired at UNT, but just work part time and still be full time in DC. It was meant so, to be. Yeah, I guess so. I, I feel. I mean, obviously, it's an honor and all that, um, but I feel like I get to be me. Yeah. And I don't have to be Neil Slater. I don't have to be Steve Weist. I don't have to be Leon Breeden. Yeah. I can be myself. That's the sense and, I get from just following you on social media and things that they really embrace you being you. Yeah, I feel that too. And that comes from the students, but also, you know, from our chair and from mm-hmm. the Dean, Dean Richmond. Uh, it, yeah. I wanted a, to say something I, quickly about Paris Rutherford because yeah. he also taught me, it's funny the things you remember from <laughs> school, you know, you remember certain things and, a lot of the little details maybe have gone away. But the one thing I got so much out of from Paris Rutherford was he taught us when we sit down to start writing to have all of your supplies re- ready. And he was very strict about it. And most people yeah. were like, what is this guy going on about? But it was like format your charts, have your, you know, because it was still using pencils and paper at that time. So you would take the ruler, you would make all your bars, you would number all of your bars, you would have your pencil and your pen and your paper and your water and everything right there at your desk. And it's something that I still preach, even with teaching piano and songwriting now is that just beginning is so much of the process because it's so hard to begin for a lot of us. Like you were sitting down at the piano and you were just saying, I want to make this simple as possible playing one note, but sometimes even getting to the piano or to the station to write is so hard that if you know you're going to, you know, and maybe all you do that day is you sit down and you do your, you, you know, split up your bars or you go to your computer and you set up your chart and you mm-hmm. have your water and everything there. That's such a valuable skill. I am sure I learned other things, but that is the yeah. one that stuck with yeah. me. Thank you, Paris. <laughs> it's true. And then, then the distractions are minimal at that point. So you Yeah, well, then you, you kind of, it's like making your bed in a way. You kind of feel like... Yeah. So in the morning I get up now, I, I'm really, I've never been a morning person. Children did not change that about me. Um, <laughs> kicking and screaming into doing morning stuff. But so now I get up with my nine-year-olds. I make my bed. I get dressed. I try to set up my workstation. Then I go to the local coffee shop. I do a bunch of stuff there. And then when I come back and I sit down, I'm like, oh, the bed is made. Because right. if it wasn't made, oh, man, I would just want to crawl back in that thing. <laughs> I still do sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. I have another song of yours that I have chosen. Okay. I chose Torque because okay, yeah. it's just so fun. I love it so much. <laughs> it's also a fun word to say and spell. It is. Tell me a little it, bit it, about it, writing this song. Yeah. Sometimes people pronounce it Torque, like it's a Spanish oh, word, but tor- it's actually Torque. Tor- and then sometimes I, I announce it and people think I'm saying Twerk, which also <laughs> isn't the right thing. Um <laughs> The whole band could stand up and twerk on a solo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. Yeah, uh, maybe not. Yeah. The, um, <laughs> Kidding. I, it was funny because I just did the, um, let me get this straight now. It was the Region 32 Jazz Ensemble here in Texas. It was in Austin. 
and we did that piece. And then when I was in Chicago, um, that that was, okay, yeah, I guess was, I was in Austin about 10 days ago, Chicago about five days ago, and the 2 o'clock played it. I'm sorry, the 2 o'clock didn't play it. It was another group from Mondelin High School that played it. Um, so it's getting a lot of um, reps. Uh, it was composed when my oldest son was a senior in high school, and he was playing bass trombone and tuba. And he was just getting into cars. Well, he was always been into cars, but he started getting serious into cars. And although my wife and I, my wife's a musician, and she thought, we just both thought, oh, he's going to go to school for tuba. But he decided, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go into cars. So he's a Porsche technician. Amazing. Yeah. It's just, it's funny that he plays these massive instruments and he's a Porsche technician. Right. And I imagine getting into cars when you said that. I imagine him with all of his tuba cases trying to get into cars, literally. <laughs> right. Well, that goes with my, my middle son, who we had to buy a car so his bass would fit in it. But my middle <laughs> son was a sophomore at the year I wrote that. And uh, so the bass part and the bass trombone part are especially featured. And um, I just wanted to do something fun, um, something funky, and something that people could kind of groove to. But not in a predictable way. You know, there's three, four, there's five, four bars mm-hmm. in there. So it, I wanted it to be challenging if you are a listener with experience. Yeah. So it's not just background music right. or dance music, but it, there's something substantial as well. Yes. Yeah. Fun, so, funky, substantial groove. Yeah. Yeah. I think those were are adjectives that, that I probably went to. Um, and, and I thought, what's the most awkward note on trombone? Okay, it's a B natural. So let me start with that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love that you started your other piece with the most simple way possible. And yeah. I like that you're starting from what's the most awkward note? <laughs> I feel like for me, some, I mean, I don't play, play bass trombone, so they would all be awkward for me. <laughs> but what's the reaction of bass trombone players when they get that first note? Like, really, man? Well, right, because it's, it's a half step away from that B flat, yeah. which is, you know, uh, <laughs> what they live in. You know, they dream to play that. Um, so it, it's pretty funny and it's <laughs> often hit or miss also, <laughs> but that's part of the joy, you know? Exactly. Not everything is perfect. We're not robots. Right. Sometimes there's gotta be right. a little bit of in there, but not on this yeah. recording. So let us listen to Torque.
That is a party. I'm smiling so wide. That is such a party, that song. It's so fun. It yeah, really that makes is me fun. Like, I really want to play that in a big band. I oh, just, let's do it. The sound of it, the different sections, yeah. like, it's so good. <laughs> it's funny. I like that you can sense your sense of humor. Music should be humorous sometimes. Oh, I totally agree with that. Yeah, for sure. Who were the two soloists on that? Um, ben Patterson. Oh. Of course. Yes. And he, uh, coincidentally, was our fall concert guest artist with One O'Clock Lab Band. Oh, nice. Again, because we're celebrating the 75th year. Yeah. Most of our guests are going to be UNT alum. Most of the jazz lecture series. Actually, all the lecture series artists will be UNT alum. So I'm thinking, okay, I get to book the fall concert artists with a 1 o'clock UNT mm-hmm. alum. You know, there's people that have been featured throughout the decades. We go Bones Malone, Lou Marini, you know, um, those folks from that era. Um, but I'm thinking, yeah, they've been here a ton and they're wonderful. But who can I feature that will inspire the students who has big band music, plays, knows, knows what to do with the big band. Mm-hmm. And of course, I thought of Ben Patterson. Perfect. Yeah, it was wonderful. And then on trumpet, that's Alex Norris, who is in New York now. I knew him from the University of Miami when I did a guest mm-hmm. spot with them, and, and he was getting a degree there. Uh, and he, I believe that was his first and only take. Just Of course. Amazing- of course it was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's, I just saw him in New York. He was playing with, I'm sorry, in Chicago. He was playing with some folks up there. Yeah, great so guy, fun. great player. So, it's been so fun. I love the solo breaks. I yeah. I love when the drums come back in. I love the guitar. I love it all. It's so good. <laughs> it's just yeah. drive with the windows down with that one, you know. I want people well, it's probably it's January. I don't know how cold it is in Texas in January. It yeah, it varies. I mean it's not below freezing yet. Right. But the, the Jazz Educators Conference is gonna be in Dallas. So they can drive right. listening to this with the windows down. Come on. Do yeah, it. That's right. Exactly. I want to hear this song out of everybody's cars. <laughs> so you can drive around and go, that's me. Right. Um, all right. At the end of every podcast, I have some rapid fire questions. Yeah. Okay. The, the goal is to not think too hard. Right. Okay. Um, a composer and or songwriter and or I will just say musician who is inspiring you right now. Oh, I'm going to say Miho Hazama. Awesome. A concert that you have seen in your life that was memorable? Uh, first time I saw the Woody Herman Band in 1986. Ooh, where was that? It was at Shenandoah University where I was getting my undergrad. Mm-hmm. Ugh, what a sound. And they were so tight. The trumpet section was swaying together. They had no idea. But not only were they playing together, but their bodies were moving together. Oh, oh man. Incredible. incredible. Bucket list person you would like to work with? I know you get to do this a lot, but we're, we're saying living or dead, you know. Oh, sure. Oh, well, dead would be Coltrane. Uh, living would be Esperanza. Oh, yeah. Say. That would be amazing. Yeah, awesome. Esperanza Spalding. Um, and last question. What is a piece of advice you would give to a young composer? Hmm. Uh, it's going to, yeah, okay. Uh, the rapid fire. I guess it would be, to to write, mm. <laughs> I'm a, we um, and not edit yourself too quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let the ideas flow, and avoid being critical too quickly. Get all the stuff out, brainstorm, get your ideas on paper, and then you can go back and finesse or delete the whole thing. But allow that process to unfold the creative process to unfold before you get too critical or too um, quick with your delete button. That is great. Great advice. Alan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It has been absolute pleasure getting to catch up with you again. And um, what are you doing in the new year? Anything going on? Any travel plans? Anything? Yeah, lots of things actually I'm excited about. Of course, we're at the Gen Conference uh, the first week of, of January. So the 1 o'clock is playing, the 2 o'clock is playing. Actually, the 1 o'clock is sharing our concert with the jazz singers. Oh, fun. So that would be great. Yeah. Um, and then um, I'll be conducting the Alabama All-State Jazz Band, the Missouri All-State Jazz Band, and then later in March, uh, the North Dakota All-State Jazz Band, and then the 1 o'clock 
and I go on tour to the great state of Florida in April. Nice. And in between, we have a bunch of performances right. as well with that band. So um, some travel coming up and yeah. some guest conducting, but also uh, the core of what I do, of course, is working with the one. Right. It's going to be busy. It's exciting. Yeah, it sounds busy. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you again. And to everybody out there listening, there will be new episodes every Monday. The song inside dot me is where you can find me. Leave me a note. Share some music. Play some big band. I don't know. Whatever. And until next week, remember that there is a song inside everyone, including you. <laughs> <laughs>